Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it is June and it's a little warm today. The sun is out. Birds are chirping. What you're about to hear is a talk I gave this past Sunday to the Long Beach Meditation Group, or Sangha. Uh, they found me on the internet and asked me if I'd speak to their group. Uh, they meet every Sunday in a church in Long Beach, and I accepted the invitation. And so what you're about to hear is my presentation to the Long Beach Meditation Group slash Sangha. Uh, first of all, I want to thank everybody here for the invitation to speak. Uh, you assume I have something to say, and that's so cool. You know, um, I guess my greatest fear is to be invited to speak and have nothing to say. And we just have to sit for hours. Today I sent out uh, the latest Urban Dharma newsletter. If you, aren't, uh, if you haven't subscribed to it, it's free. And what I do... Uh, each time I send out the newsletters, I, I pick a theme, and then I go on the internet and find some articles that fit in the theme, and then I assemble them in uh, a text file and a PDF file, and I send them out to everybody who who signed up. And so um, the one I sent out today, I think, was sort of interesting for me, because um, as some of you might know, uh, coming up in September... I'm going to be teaching a class at Loyola Marymount University, which for me is a lot of fun because it, it makes me feel like a professor to, to walk in and actually have a class in a blackboard. And, and media, which I don't use. It's just pretty much me talking. But the, the, the topic of the, the class is going to be the five precepts. And, and as you all know, the five precepts are... I'll just remind everybody, uh, to avoid taking life, to avoid taking what is not given, to avoid sexual misconduct, to avoid lying, and to avoid consuming intoxicants. Those are the five precepts. And every time I say those five precepts in explaining them, when I get to the precept of sexual misconduct, I always look away from everybody because I don't want anybody to feel like I'm talking about them. (laughs) And (laughs) And... The question that came to my mind, and and this is the way my mind works, it's overly simplistic. The question was, what is the history of good and evil? You know, what is the history of good and evil? And is there even a history of good and evil? Well, all you got to do is go to Google and say history of good and evil, and there it is. There is a history. And apparently, good and evil is a rather current concept, about 400 B.C., according to one of the articles I read. And, and the reason I, I wanted to get into good and evil is because um, with the five precepts, are we trying to be good by practicing the five precepts? And are we trying not to be evil by practicing the five precepts? And as it turns out, we're trying to do neither one. You know, And, and why might that be the case, you say to yourself? And it seems to me the reason it's not the case in Buddhism is because we do not have a divine lawgiver that defines for us what is right and wrong. 
Instead of a divine lawgiver, in Buddhism we have karma. We have cause and consequence. And instead of being good, we're skillful. Instead of being bad, we're unskillful. So we have a much lighter burden to carry, I think, in, in our life as a Buddhist than perhaps a Christian Jew Muslim who would have those very heavy Ten Commandments. And we have the five precepts. And they're just training precepts. I mean, we don't even have to do them if we don't want to. We have to sort of accept the consequences for not doing them. That's not an option. But if, if, if any of us decide not to keep any of the precepts, that's fine. You know, it just means we suffer a little more. And, and, and some of us like to suffer, I guess. It makes us feel like uh, we're um, purifying ourselves through our suffering. And, and I don't think we need to do that. I think we need to purify ourselves through practicing precepts. Um, so here we have this thing where there's like no good and evil in Buddhism, and there's no right and wrong in Buddhism. There's just skillful and unskillful, more suffering and less suffering. And, and so what we need is we need to have karma, but we also need to have rebirth as well. And, and so many people fight the concept of rebirth because it seems so foreign to Westerners and the Western approach. You know, that most of you probably feel this is your first lifetime. And I did, too, until I started meditating. And then I realized I'm so born every moment, you know, so I have many lifetimes all the time. And, and do we need to have, like, a real life previously or real life in the future? Or can, can we look at rebirth as simply being all the many kinds of births we've had in this lifetime? And I think for some of us, that's probably as far as we're going to go. We're not going to be able to say, yes, I have another lifetime coming, and I've already lived many lifetimes, and look where it got me so far. Jeez. So, so I think it's open to interpretation, but karma doesn't work without rebirth. And I thought that was an interesting concept, because Stephen Batchelor um, has a problem with rebirth. He likes karma. But he doesn't like rebirth. And, and when I read that article, I think it was in Tricycle Magazine about him speaking about his issues with rebirth, that, that he didn't really felt, feel Buddhism needed rebirth to be Buddhism, that we, Buddhism could exist without rebirth, and it would be okay, and then it would be much easier for all the Westerners to be Buddhists because they didn't have to deal and struggle with rebirth. But I don't think it works like that. I think we need to sort of figure out how rebirth is important to Buddhism. Um, it may not need to be important to us, but it, it is important to Buddhism. Uh, and, and that reminds me of a question that's often asked if I'm speaking at high schools. They say, well, do you believe in Buddhism? And I said, no, no. I, I, I have confidence that Buddhism is true, but I don't believe in Buddhism. Well, how do you know Buddhism is true? Is it because of what you read? And I said, well, no, I know Buddhism to be true because that's the explanation of Buddhism. So when I go and give a presentation, I'm not asked to make you believe in Buddhism. I'm just sort of asked to tell you what Buddhism is and then leave it up to you. So I don't think my job is uh, to proselytize, but my job is to sort of get the facts right. And also 
allow you to understand when it's personal opinion or on page 34. That's a very important because a lot of people will speak and it's their personal opinion and yet they, they present it in such a, a powerful and confident way that it turns you think it's the teachings of the Buddha. So there's a lot of me in my speaking, but there's also a lot of Buddha in page 34 in my speaking. And on page 34, it talks about rebirth. And so here we are, you know, we all made it for whatever reason. Well, I actually know the reason, and if you've listened to my podcast, you do too. But, but the reason we're here is because our parents had sex and we had karma. And those two things came together and we showed up. Now, for the last two days, our koi fish have been mating. And, and I take care of the koi pond, and I work on it every day. I'm very conscientious, and I the water and the, get rid of the algae and feed them, and, and it looks so nice. And then when the fish have their orgies, it just ruins all my hard work. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, nature will not be denied. And, and yet, perhaps they have a little karma, too, happening. You know, and, and how it works is, for me, really fascinating that the, that the females will lay the eggs and the males will fertilize them and then everybody will eat them. And the ones that aren't eaten are the ones that, you know, are swimming around in our koi pond next year. And we've never had less koi fish every year. We've always had more, more koi fish. So we don't seem to have less people either, do we? We always seem to have more people. And, and... One of the high school students asked me about that. Well, why do we have more people? You know, where do they come from? And I said, well, they come from heaven and hell. You know, and there's just all these realms of existence. The the populations were ever-changing. And when I was a volunteer in state prison, I often felt that a lot of those folks there were just reborn out of hell. This was their first time out of hell for a very long time and just didn't quite know what to do as a human being. And then... Occasionally, you get somebody who really knows what to do as a human being. And, and they're like these creatures being reborn out of heaven. And they come to visit us for a while. And they're never here long enough, you know. And um, so as I look at the ever-growing population, I see, yeah, more and more realms of existence. See, this, is the, this is the one that's the best. This is the only one that, with one exception, that allows us to achieve nirvana, allows us to achieve our perfection as a human being allows us to end all future rebirth, allows us to end our karma. Now, I don't know how many people want to end their karma, probably not too many, and I don't know how many people want to end all existence, probably not too many. And, and I struggle with that too. I'm thinking, okay, well now we have these five precepts and that's like the foundation of our meditation practice. And the meditation practice is designed to change what we think and say because what we, what we think, say, and do really manifests first in our mind. In the, in the Dhammapada, it says our mind leads our speech and action into the world, like uh, an ox cart following an ox. So I'm going, okay, so the first thing I'm going to do is to speak skillfully, so I have good karma, to act skillfully, so I have good karma, and then the most important thing, which takes the longest time, is to think skillfully. And then that will lead my speech and action in just a very natural way. It will manifest very nicely in the world. And nobody around me will suffer because of what I say and do. And neither will I. Uh, But how many years do I have to meditate? So I've been meditating since 1980, and it still hasn't worked yet. 
you know, I still need to be very cautious in what I say and do uh, because um, sometimes it's misinterpreted or sometimes it's intentional on my part, uh, either through anger or delusion or greed or lust. And, and gosh, once those words manifest in that world, you just can't take them back. There they are. And you're sort of stuck. So I'm thinking nirvana. Yeah, that is so cool. That would end all my unskillful speech, all my unskillful action, and all my unskillful thought. I would only and always be skillful. And then eventually nirvana would just end all the karma right there. That no matter what I said, it wouldn't be creating karma. No matter what I thought, it wouldn't be creating karma. And no matter what I did, it wouldn't be creating karma. I'm thinking, yeah, that is so cool. And because karma is important in my next rebirth, if karma is not there, then I may not have to be reborn. I figured it out. There's really nothing I can do about my parents having sex. But there is something I can do about my karma. So if I end my karma, then I won't have to show up. But then the question I was faced with is what happens to me then? Do I just not exist and go back into whatever it is I came from? And after a lot of thought, I, I realized that, that I would still exist in a very special way. I, I just wouldn't exist because of birth anymore. I would exist because of nirvana. And I remember the Buddha in one of his suttas talking about, I teach the path to immortality. You know? But he wasn't telling us how not to die. Because most of us don't want to die. And we would think if, if we could achieve immortality, then we'd never have to die. But I don't know, would any of us want to live in this world forever? It's a pretty tough place to live, even when things are going okay. You know? And when they start to go bad, it really gets difficult. But if we could exist without being born, then we wouldn't have the problem of birth which leads to old age, which leads to sickness, and which leads to death. If we could exist without being born, we would have the option, well, we have the right never to not exist ever again. And so, as I thought about this, I'm thinking, well, why is it so difficult to understand this concept? You know, uh, and, and I came to the conclusion that it's really difficult to understand this concept because... Everything in this world is created. You know, everything. There's not one thing here that wasn't created. And I guess that's why there's so much emphasis on the creator God. In Hinduism, you know, Brahma, the creator, is sort of at the top of the hierarchy in charge of creation. Cool. And if you're a Christian or have Christian background, you've heard tell that perhaps God, you know, was the first cause, which is a... a, a an interesting concept to deal with, and it sort of puts all your doubt to rest. You can go on to the next thing, you know. But if you're not a Christian and you're still concerned about how we got here, I would recommend a website, uh, The Flying Spaghetti Monster. And, and it actually turns out he's the reason we're all here. He was the first cause. And they, they have the Flying Spaghetti Monster Bible, which goes into the theology of the first cause. And they also have T-shirts you can buy on the website. And, and I think as a Buddhist, that kind of flexibility is wonderful. We don't have to stick with any one concept or theory. We can just say, I don't know. We can say, I don't care. 
or we can say flying spaghetti monster. And everybody around us will just go, well, they're a Buddhist. It doesn't matter to them why we're here. And of course, it really doesn't matter to us why we're here. It matters to us what we're going to do now that we are here, it seems to me. That's the most important uh, thing to think about. So existing without being born, existing because of nirvana, and I guess if that's the case, every human being, man and woman, who has achieved nirvana exists today, still. But, but we can't see him. And we can't taste him, we can't touch him, we can't smell him, can't hear them. Because none of our sense doors are focused on things that weren't created. Our sense doors only work with creation. And if it wasn't created, it doesn't stimulate our sense doors. So the Buddha, and some people think this is actually the case, is, could be here right now with us. Maybe even smiling. And, and none of our sense doors can figure it out because he wasn't created through birth. Wow. So how many other things uh, are existing today that aren't created? It'd be an interesting topic to study. I don't know if Google can take us there or not. So that's one thing I was thinking about. Another thing I was thinking about was something that happened yesterday. I was at True Yoga in Thousand Oaks, California yesterday. I'm there twice a week, pardon me, twice a month every two weeks, and, and the topic came, came up, we, gender and religion. Wow, this is such a powerful topic. Everybody's getting ready for this one. And, and the newsletter prior to the one on good and evil was on gender and religion. And, and I, to be honest with you, being a guy, I never really thought about gender very much. And I, it might be a dumb thing to say, and an unlikened thing to say, but it just was never a big issue. I mean, I, I'm not even married, you know. It's just me and the cat, and he's a guy too. And so, you know, we get along fine. And and then I did a search. I said uh, religion, I said gender, and I said Buddhism. And Google came up with all sorts of stuff. And I was just amazed at, at how unfair religion is when it comes to gender. I had no clue. And... And so I did a little research, and I started it off with sort of a, a more of a Christian perspective of gender and religion. And then I got into Buddhist perspective of gender and religion, which turns out to be a bit different than Christian perspective. And then I ended with an article I found in, in, in a Canadian newspaper called uh, Gender Equality Ends at the Pew. And so if you go to church and sit down, it doesn't seem to be equal. But what did... Buddhism say about gender. That was the focus of my newsletter. And uh, Stephen Batchelor's wife wrote an article about this. And I guess that's sort of a gender way of saying it, isn't it? And she brought up this question. She said, do men and women meditate differently? And she didn't think so. Now, I thought that was interesting because I always thought women did meditate differently than men. I thought they, it was easier for them to meditate because I found it so difficult to meditate and sit still. And they seemed so good at it. And I figured it must be their gender, you know. But as I spoke to women about meditating, they said they suffered too. 
I said, okay, good. So it must not be the gender then. It must be that they practice more. Or I practice less. But she came to the conclusion that men and women meditate the same. Which I think is sort of an interesting idea. Then she brought up the question of, do men and women both achieve nirvana? And the answer is yes, they both achieve nirvana. And the story that goes with that is one of my favorite stories of the, the Buddhist stepmother who wanted to be the first nun. Actually, she turned out being the first nun, but she just wanted to be a nun and turned out to be the first one. But the Buddha was very resistant. He, he said, no, I can't. I can't really ordain you because in our time and place, India, 2,500 years ago, there aren't any female clergy that are credible. And my teachings are so important to the world that if I ordain you, they will end sooner than they have to. And she was so disappointed. She said, here, this guy, and of course I'm paraphrasing, this guy I raised when his mother died. She was the sister of the birth mother. And, and raised him and nurtured him and uh, he left her and became the Buddha. And then her husband died and she had no man in her life. And 2,500 years ago, again, if you didn't have a man in your life, it was pretty difficult. I guess even if you did have a man in your life, it was pretty difficult. <laughs> but she kept going, and she said, went to the next village and said, come on, now why won't you ordain me? And he said the exact same thing. Finally, she enlisted the help of Ananda, uh, the cousin of the Buddha, and right-hand monk, and said, Ananda, I want to become ordained, and, and the Buddha won't do it. Can you talk to him? And he said, yes, I'll talk to him. So he approached the Buddha, and, and laid out the argument that, that she had nurtured him and taken care of him and, and now uh, didn't have any men in her life and, and she wanted to be a nun. And, and the Buddha had the same answer. And then Ananda got really clever. And he said, but can a woman achieve nirvana? And the Buddha said, yes, of course. And is everything ever changing? Is everything in a state of flux? And the Buddha said, yes, of course. And because of rebirth, is even gender in a state of flux? Birth time, lifetime to lifetime. Buddha said, yes. Well, then why can't she be ordained? And the Buddha said, yes, <laughs> she can. And I thought, what a positive statement that makes, that the reason the Buddha ordained women is because they could achieve nirvana, not because they were women or men. And and I'm going, yeah, that is so cool. So as I did my research on this gender and religion, I saw that Buddhism is pretty progressive. That 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 the things that we find Buddhism talking about when it comes to gender is mostly cultural. It doesn't come out of Buddhism or what the Buddha taught. It comes out of where Buddhism is being practiced. And and those social prejudices are difficult to get beyond, get past sometimes. But now Buddhism is in the West. And isn't that cool? Because we have, we're getting more and more equality all the time. And so um, just two weeks ago, I was invited to go to a Methodist church and speak to a Asian-American congregation. Everybody was Asian except for me. And I'm speaking to them about Buddhism. And I'm going, wow, it's starting to happen already. Caucasians are taking Buddhism back to Asia. 
in the same way Asia brought Buddhism to us. But we're taking it back with our culture connected to it in our particular way of looking at it. And as Buddhism evolves, it's going to be a very pleasant practice and religion. And it will benefit us in many ways. We will suffer less and never have to be reborn again. But simply exist because of our nirvana in bliss and happiness. Maybe it's raw consciousness, whatever that might be. So we were we kept talking about this gender stuff, and then something really interesting came up because we had a lot of guys there, and you know, guys are I find are a lot like me, and I, a lot of times when guys talk with each other, it's not not very enlightening, you know, and 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 so we talked about how how men sort of respond to to females in in. Yeah, and, we, and we had this one uh, example of, uh, and this I actually heard on NPR uh, a few months ago. Uh, he was talking about being in a park. This, this man was in a park. And this nine-year-old girl came up to him and said she couldn't find her family. Would he help? And his first reaction was, no, I can't. I can't. How would it look? For me, being an older man holding a girl's hand who was nine years old. Have you seen the video? Have you seen that video of the old guy and the young girl? And even if the intention was good, what would people think? And all of a sudden, sort of one by one, each man in the room said, Yeah, I've, if, if I'm in a room with teenagers, this one man talk, said, I, 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 I try to leave. If they're teenage girls, I try not to be in the room with them. If, if there's no reason for me to be there, because I feel uncomfortable. I feel it could be misinterpreted. And women were surprised to hear that from men. Uh, and, and, and so I see gender role you know, goes very deep. It's not just religion, but it's also part of our practice and the way we, we practice Buddhism. And then one of the women said to me, she said, well, when you achieve nirvana, do you transcend your gender? And the answer is no. You are a male or a female who has realized their nirvana, but you still have a gender role to play. Even if your consciousness has been transformed, your body hasn't. And I know in Buddhism, we all dress alike, if you're at a monastery, the men and women dress exactly alike. They have no hair. They have the same robes. Nobody wears makeup. And at a distance, it's hard to tell who's who. And, and I sort of appreciate the, when people say monks and nuns because it gives me an idea of male or female. But in Shasta Abbey, everybody's a monk, whether you're male or a female. And so... That confuses me sometimes. I, I was thinking maybe monk or nunk. Have that sort of thing happening. But, <laughs> but there it's monk, and everybody's a monk. And so, so there is this transcendence of gender up to a point. But I guess even in nirvana, we don't leave the vehicle behind. But I'm sure there's a different kind of relationship that's been created because of enlightenment or nirvana with your gender. 
that 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 you see the sexual roles the gender plays, and you see the 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 community roles the gender plays, and you see the the family roles the gender plays, and and yet do you have to be any of those all the time? I think it's appropriate to be some of those some of the time, but but as we sit in meditation, are we sitting as a a male or a female, or are we just sitting? Do you feel like a woman as you sit? Do you feel like a man as you sit? Or do you just have sore knees as you sit? You know, it's an interesting uh, reflection, perhaps, the next time you sit. So we came to no conclusions yesterday, other than the fact that it's difficult to be both a man and a woman. And, and then now, of course, we have other gender roles that have come up and are being validated. So it's even more confusing now for some and less confusing for others. So I've chosen to be uh, a guy and sort of uh, with all its strengths and weaknesses and um, and I'm just sort of dealing with that in this lifetime. Whatever karma I had said, well, this is your, this is your classroom in this lifetime. How, how can you be a good guy in your, in your life? And so, so far, I am sort of good. Though I guess I'm, uh, because I'm a monk, I'm not going to get married. So I don't know what that says about my guyness, but uh, I guess that's okay. Maybe I didn't need to in this lifetime. So, and happy Father's Day to everybody here who's a father. Uh, I'm not, but I can appreciate the hard work that goes into it, you know, and the suffering too. So does anybody have any questions they'd like to ask or comments on what I've said so far? Emily, how about you? I saw you smiling. (laughs) And I know your name. (laughs) And now, I'm good. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. Yes? Uh, Is it now that uh, today a woman can't be ordained in the Buddhist? Good, good question. Okay, this is how it sort of works, I found out after doing all my research, that um, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, they can only be ordained as a novice, not fully ordained. For some reason, full ordination never made it over the Himalayas. And so they've never had fully ordained nuns in the Tibetan tradition until a few years ago. And what happened is the Tibetan nuns are now receiving ordination in other traditions, but they're not giving up their robes. They're keeping their robes and keeping an ordination in, in Chinese Buddhism or Vietnamese Buddhism fully ordained. You need ten women to be fully ordained to be able to ordain one new nun. So the, so the critical number was ten, and there are more than ten Tibetan nuns fully ordained, and they are Tibetan, and they are ordaining other nuns as well. Um, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, the southern school of Buddhism, Theravada tradition. They've had, in the past, they've had full ordination for women. But that died out. And when you get below the critical number of ten, then you can't ordain any new nuns. And the same with monks. Well, at one point in the history of Sri Lanka, uh, the male ordination... The, the bhikkhu ordination died off as well. And monks from Thailand came over and started ordaining Sri Lankans, and they created a new male sangha, but they didn't create a female sangha. 
So in Thailand, this is a big problem because there are a lot of women who can't even be ordained as novice nuns. They're, they're anagarikas. They've taken eight precepts. They were white. Uh, they're looked at as an advanced layperson, but not an ordained person. In Sri Lanka, they have reestablished the ordination of bhikkhunis, fully ordained nuns. And so there are more and more women coming from the various countries in Asia to Sri Lanka to be fully ordained and then going back to their countries and, and recreating the bhikkhuni ordination again. Um, in, in Taiwan, it's fine. The females, males, there's plenty. Asian Buddhism, though, there's, there's, there is a disparity. There is a, a gap between male and female ordained. Um, the, the, oftentimes the females uh, run the centers as far as the work is concerned, but the center is directed by a monk. So it's, it's still patriarchal. The center where I live, we have a woman who's the abbess of the center. So I have uh, a unique perspective on that. And, uh, and it works fine, whether male or female, as long as they can do the job. And she can. We've been in existence for... A little over 30 years, so so far so good. So yeah, so it's not it's not as rosy as one might think Buddhism would be when you look at the ordination. There's also the 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 Buddhist nun needs to take more precepts than the male, and that's because they're female. And so and so people might say, well, that's not fair, you know. And at first glance, it doesn't look fair at all. But if the females only took the precepts for the female, they would have less precepts than the male, which leads me to believe that females are more skillful than males. And many of the extra precepts have to do with being in the company of monks. And, and I think rather than it being a penalty, it was a wise thing to do. So what the Buddha said, if, if a monk and nun are in the same room, they need a third person. And, and so things are less likely to be misunderstood if the third person's in the room with the male and the female. And, and that was a, something that was done 2,500 years ago, but it might be applicable today as well. Sometimes if you have that third person in the room, everybody's a lot more comfortable. And, and so some of the rules are to protect the nuns, uh, not penalize them, as I understand it. And so... So it's, it's uh, a difficult subject to speak uh, with uh, equanimity about. <laughs> yes? Um, it's interesting. I've heard uh, Buddhism referred to as the religion of no religion. And it makes me, you know, I guess I'm still exploring it, but I thought as soon as you get organization involved, it seems like any religion, as soon as it gets organized, it goes from the mystic and the idea of individual enlightenment to Yeah, yeah, and that's that's fine not to embrace that part of it. Uh, a lot of people come to Buddhism because they need a therapy. You know, they're having problems with their wife or husband, and they figure if they meditate, uh, it'll get worked out. I always encourage counseling. It's much faster. Meditation takes years. 
you, you can be uh, fully enlightened, you can achieve nirvana without ever hearing one word about Buddhism. There's a whole category called the silent Buddha, the Pacheka Buddha. And these are people who, through their own mistakes or intuition or wisdom, became enlightened. Wow, that is so cool. So they're not Buddhists, but they are enlightened. Uh, is there a, a need to have ordained people in Buddhism? I would say yes. And that's because the ordained people are the direct link to the Buddha. Are we going to have more Dharma teachers than monks in America? Now, Dharma teachers are lay people who teach Buddhism. I'm going to, I'm going to say yeah. Because we have a lot more Protestants than Catholics in America, too, and we're sort of used to the Protestant model rather than the Catholic model. Is it, is it detrimental to Buddhism to have a monastic community? I would say no. And, and what the monastic community did is, is something that one person can't do, and that's keep Buddhism alive through decade after decade, century after century. That the, uh, the original monks and then nuns uh, their primary job was to memorize the suttas, the talks of the Buddha. And so the lay people would go to the monks and nuns and ask, well, what did the Buddha say about this? And the monk and nun would say, well, sutta number 34 in the Majjhima Nikaya says this, and blah, 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 blah. And it was like a walking encyclopedia, most cool. And each monastery had a chance to memorize a certain section. So to hear the, the entire teachings of the Buddha, all these different monasteries would come together and recite what they had memorized. Thankfully, we finally got into printing, and people you know, were able to read and write and become literate, and you go, okay, cool, so now we don't need the monks and nuns. Well, they, they still keep the rituals alive. And do you need a ritual in your life to be uh, a Buddhist? Actually, you don't. You can just be a secular Buddhist and study the philosophy, and that's great. There's no problem with that. For some people, it gets a little dry. For some people, the rites and rituals are the icing on the cake. It's personal, heartfelt involvement in their practice. It's not just an intellectual understanding. Which is fine. I, I, I'm not much of a scholar, unfortunately, and I'm always impressed when I am around scholars because they know so much and they speak so well and they've written all these books and they have all these letters at the end of their name. And my gosh, wouldn't that be cool? But then I thought to myself, well, where do, where do they go when they die? You know, to the library, you know, and study some more. <laughs> So, so as a human being, there's self-power and there's other power. And Buddhism has both. I've often thought when people meditate, we are meditating alone together. Uh, Buddhism doesn't have this flock theory with the shepherd. You know, Buddhism has a bunch of cat theories. You know, we're all cats. We've gathered together for a little while. But we're all going to go our separate ways. And no matter how much practice we do together, most of the practice we'll do will be alone at home, you know, or on retreat. But it's rare to be in a group. That's why groups are so wonderful to participate in. And if you do it every week, it's, it's a blessing. Some people in parts of the country, when I get the emails, they don't they have nothing. They, have not, they don't even have a yoga studio to go to, certain parts of Oklahoma, you know. And then when they do have a yoga studio, studio to go to, when they do the sun salutation, it's spelled S-O-N. 
that's a little scary, you know. So, <laughs> so, so it's okay not to look at it as religion. It still works when it's not a religion. But it also works as a religion for people that want a religion. And I came to it wanting a religion. And I got much more than that. So I, I feel blessed. Thanks for the question. Did I, did I answer it, sorry? Okay. Okay. Yes, sir. I had a question about karma. Okay. Um, I haven't done a lot of reading Buddhist sutras and stuff. I, you know, gone to a lot of dharma talks and uh, a fair number of retreats. Um, and I've done some reading by Ken Wilber, you know, who asserts that karma results, well, it's basically an energy that's created, you know, by either skillful or unskillful acts. And it doesn't necessarily, it might not necessarily affect you directly, but it might affect, you know, somebody else, somebody in your community, a friend, you know, you, next time around, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was interested in your reaction to that. Okay. Um, I'll go one step further, and I, Ken Wilber is one of my favorite authors, uh, that um, we don't create karmic energy, we transform it. That uh, my understanding of energy is that you can't kill it or create it. It just it's just there all the time. And so here we are as karma transformers. And we have this energy in the world. And every time we think something, we're transforming the energy that's already there. And we give it a moral uh, value, skillful, unskillful. Every time we say something, we're taking energy that's already there and transforming it. And every time we do something, we're taking energy that's already there and transforming it. Now, that energy stays transformed for a while. And that, and that stream of energy that we've been transforming our whole life is what transmigrates to the next lifetime. Do we uh, um, always feel the consequences of that energy transformation? I would say no, we don't. And that's why rebirth is such an important aspect of karma. Because if you take an overly simplified example of somebody who's really an unskillful, bad person who has caused a lot of pain and suffering to people around them, and yet they seem to have a wonderful life, you know? And then you have this really good person who never did anything bad in their life and dies in a car accident at 14. And you go, what? Where is the justice? Well, Buddhism, we don't have justice, you know? Again, we don't have a divine lawgiver, so we can't go there. But we can say to ourselves, perhaps, uh, because of many lifetimes previously, they had done so many good things, so many skillful things, their pond was so big that that teaspoon of salt, the unskillful karma they created in this lifetime, when it was mixed in the pond of good activities from past lifetimes, you couldn't even taste the salt. And then there are times when people and we all have seen examples of this when people are born with such wonderful potential. And a woman that comes to mind is Mary Ann Faithful. Is anybody here old enough to remember Mary Ann Faithful? 
Okay, well, you know, on PBS they had this wonderful thing called the Rock and Roll Circus. And it was Mick Jagger and the boys. And Marianne Faithful was on. So I did a, a YouTube search of Marianne Faithful and saw some of her earliest videos. And she was angelic. She had a wonderful natural voice and it was great. I really enjoyed listening to her. And then as I listened to her uh, interview, she found drugs. She found promiscuity. She found Mick Jagger. <laughs> maybe there's a connection there somewhere. And she, and she tried to commit suicide, you know, and went unconscious for six days in Australia when she was supposed to be part of a movie. You know? And then she was homeless for two years and she struggled back. And, and man, what a journey. So here we have someone who started off pretty good with a lot of potential but ended up being rather unskillful and the consequences manifested pretty quickly. And then because of the skillful activities she involved herself in later in her life, the course changed. So one of the great things for me about Buddhism is, is we have an opportunity to make our life better. It's not predestination. It's every moment of every day is a chance to make our future better by being skillful in that present moment, by using the idea of karma and consequence and having an awareness of what we think, what we say, and what we do. And, and so as I look at people's lives and as I get older, uh, I really like reading biographies now because lives are so filled with drama. The highs and the lows, it's never always good. And even if it is a really great life, sometimes people are just really depressed because it's so good, you know, which is one of the problems with heaven. There's no, you know, it's always really good. You get bored easily. Being a human being is great. So that's how I understand karma. It's the transformation of energy. And that transformation of energy has consequences. But um, if we are aware and take responsibility we can make a pretty good life. And we don't need someone to die for our unskillfulness. You know, what we have instead of that is someone who is teaching us how to be skillful. That's a pretty cool thing, I think. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, okay. Good, thank you. Thank you. Yes? It seems to me that, um, you know, in my practice, the key has been the acquisition of and the benefits of, of equanimity. I wonder if you could speak about that. Yeah, that is one of the hardest places to get to and the best place to be, right in the middle, you know, equanimity. And, and so how do we get equanimity? Well, I, the first practice seems to be patience. We need to practice patience. That's the first step towards equanimity. And, and, and as our patience deepens, and I find myself having problems with that because sometimes I'm impatient. I have a lot of things to do sometimes. And, and then it's just like, how can I get it all done? And, and all these people are in my way and they're driving too slow or they're driving too fast or I don't know where I'm going and da, 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 da. And so patience with myself first, patience with others second. As I practice my patience, that patience slowly turns into acceptance. 
One of the techniques to make patients turn into acceptance is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a good way of bringing relationships back into balance, I found. You know, and, and I know Christians talk a lot about forgiveness, but I was always a bit skeptical about that. I should even say cynical about that. Because, because when you forgive someone, I said uh, to Father Gill one day, I said, Father Gill, when you forgive someone as a Catholic, what you're really doing is you're up here and you're forgiving the person who's down here. It's not equal. You know, you're standing on your soapbox saying, I forgive. And Father Gill, a very kind man, had a lot of acceptance of me, I must say, said, well, Kusla, try to look at it this way. You've been talking about acceptance as, 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 as being better than forgiveness. But what does acceptance and forgiveness do in the relationship? In both cases, forgiveness and acceptance brings the relationship back into balance. We're just taking a different approach to finding the balance. And, and so if, if I'm having trouble accepting, maybe I can forgive and then have that forgiveness lead me into the place of acceptance. And, of course, the final outcome of acceptance is equanimity. You, you look at the world and see the perfection. And, and to be honest with you, when I look at the world, I can't see the perfection yet. I, I, can, see, I can see how it could be better, you know? <laughs> but it's there. The, the world in every moment is exactly the way it's supposed to be, whether we like it or not. You know, and uh, and that acceptance allows us to find peace in this very uncomfortable world we live in. Now, some people might say, "Well, let's change the world." And the Buddhists didn't do that. Buddhist approach was not systemic. Our approach was not to cover the world in leather. Our approach was to put shoes on. And so, it's one person at a time in Buddhism. If you get enough people changing themselves, eventually the world changes too. So, so as I look at the world, I see the world as being ultimately unsatisfactory and it will never be perfect and will ultimately die. Maybe it won't have to die as quickly as it's doing right now if we were a little bit smarter, a little more sensitive to global issues of warming and pollution. But besides that, we can't save the world. And why can't we save the world? Because it was created and everything that's created has to die. So one day, it will die. The sun will go out, or we won't be able to breathe anymore, or there'll be no water to drink, and it'll be dead. But something else will take its place. There's that evolution aspect, you know, expansion and contraction, and, and it, there it goes on. So first you want to help it, then you feel so, you know, incapable of helping, and then you say, well, if it was only this way, and you struggle through that. And it's, I guess it's almost like dying. When people die, they go through these different stages, you know. There's anger and there's guilt and there's why me and blah, blah, blah. and then finally, if we're lucky enough to have a good death, there's this wonderful place of acceptance with it's exactly the way it's supposed to be. So how can I die well and and not fight to live anymore? You know, and uh, so it's that kind of thing. So first we have patience, then we might use forgiveness, then we come to a place of acceptance, and then that acceptance matures into equanimity. But it doesn't mean that we're insensitive. It doesn't mean we don't feel the suffering of others. It, it, just, it, it just means we don't take on that suffering. 
And, and what benefit would that be, you might say to yourself, uh, being in the midst of all suffering but not feeling it, not having it affect you? You'd be so much more capable of being of assistance if you weren't caught in the drama that if you had equanimity in New Orleans after the hurricane, you could have accomplished a lot. But there were so many dramas going on that I'm sure the heart was broken and confusion and, and all sorts of things arose. So there's a great sense of clarity and awareness with this equanimity as well, and that, which I think is the, another outcome. Buddhism, the end result is said to be compassion and wisdom. You have to have both. If you have too much compassion, you might give all your money away. And then you won't have time to finish your practice and achieve nirvana. If you have too much wisdom, you might figure out why it's not good to give your money away. And so with a little bit of both, you give just enough money away. (laughs) Which is what I told the business majors at USC when they said, is it okay for a Buddhist to make a lot of money? I said, oh yes, think how much more money you can give away. So it's fine. Just, I think as a Buddhist, it's important to use the money and not own the money. I think the ownership causes us the problem. But money can be used in very skillful ways. It can reduce a lot of suffering in the world. Yes? I'm going to talk about um, this gender thing. Mm. As I age, this is for me personally, as I age, I'm getting in the middle. I'm neither female. Now, this sounds weird, but I'm neither female or male. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this is, I wasn't that way when I was young. Yeah. Yeah. But as I'm aging, it doesn't. I, I put on the act, the female act, of course. Oh, yeah. I am, but but um, I've gone in meditation spaces where I'm not. I'm, I'm not male. I, I mean, I'm not male or female. I'm not. I'm not. Mm-hmm. And, um, Is there I, a certain liberation in that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's what I was going to say. That maybe this gender talk. I think gender is more important to young people. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. Uh, um, I I think they should ban Viagra. That would help. That would help gender uh, issues. You know. Yeah, exactly. But you know, so I yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. But there are roles that we need to play. Like you say, you can see through the gender role now. You you, you can see the transparency of it. But 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 it still needs to be played out sometimes because other people get confused if you're neither one or the other. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm just. It's a habit, you know. It is a habit. I think mom started it, didn't she? <laughs> Didn't, didn't mom sort of dress as funny in the beginning, you know, blue and pink and that kind of stuff? Yeah. And it just went on from there. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Thank you. I, I find the same thing myself, that, that the older I get, uh, the less important it is to be male, you know. Uh, though, one of the uh, examples I brought up, which sort of triggered this whole conversation at True Yoga, was the fact that I often ride a motorcycle sometimes. Uh, I often ride a motorcycle sometimes. I guess that's not a very good sentence. But I often ride a motorcycle, and, and sometimes if I'm at a stoplight and there's a, a woman in her late 20s or older walking across, and she looks at me to see if I'm looking at her, I'll do the appropriate motorcycle nod. 
And but I won't go any further than that. And that brought up a lot of anger because how can you do that? You know, and especially as a monk nodding at a woman in the crosswalk. <laughs> and and then they said, but do you do that with men too? And I and I said yes. I said sometimes a man will walk by and look at the motorcycle and say, "Cool motorcycle." And I'll go. Yes, I'll recognize the fact that they exist. You know, and 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 the reason I started to do that was because I was practicing equanimity, which was confused with indifference, and I realized it made people feel really uncomfortable when you ignore them, because they're two feet in front of you, and when you're on a motorcycle, you're not behind a, a windshield or doors or roof; you're just out there with them, and so you, you, you can actually talk to them and say, "Hi, how you doing?" You know. So I, I realized that the roles of changed when I was on a motorcycle, that I needed to be a motorcycle guy. And that's what motorcycle guys do. If I'm wearing the robes, there are certain things that robe guys do and don't do. I don't nod at people in the crosswalk in the robes. Um, if I'm with young girls, I ignore them. If I'm with older people, I engage them. I, I realized that, that being a male and being a certain age as a male, I'm required to do different things than when I was younger. And as I get even older still with any kind of luck, my role will change again. And so it's ever-changing, but I, I see the role as being important but transparent, that it's not really who I am, it's what I do. It's sort of that kind of thing. Thank you for bringing that up. Thank you. That's good. Mm-hmm. Unless emotions come up, and you know, but, no, but men have emotions too. <laughs> okay, I, just, I, I, I like the way you said that. You know, unless emotions come up, and then I realize I'm a female. <laughs> but it's true. Yeah, I, I think I think that's one of the places we find the most peace is when we transcend all those roles that we're normally encouraged to be part uh, to to play in. To be, that, that's our part, you know, yeah. And I suppose when we achieve nirvana, the roles are even more transparent, that we only do it because other people need it, not because we need to do it, you know. How would you keep your gender? Well, I don't think you can get rid of your gender. I think it's your gift in this lifetime. And even if psychologically you have transformed your idea of gender, you still have the package. But that's what I mean. Yeah. Why? Yeah. But you don't have the package anymore, right? You no, you body. still have a body. And when people see your body, you still have a body. Mm. You still have a body. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unfortunately, when you achieve nirvana, you don't lose your body. Oh, I thought. Okay. You, now, pari nirvana is when your body dies. That's, That's nirvana after the body. Okay. And then, then you have no gender. Cool. That's right. That's good. That's right. But the Buddha was a guy until he died. So that, and that, that before you die, that nirvana that you reached before you die. That's right. He, he only transforms his consciousness. He didn't transform his body, which is a really interesting point for me. Because in one of the suttas, it said he had to sit down. He was 80 years old. He was walking around talking. He had to sit down because his back hurt. And, and that immediately raised a lot of questions for me. He felt pain. But he achieved nirvana. He ended his suffering. How could he feel pain? 
Yeah. And, well, and uh, suffering is optional. Pain isn't, as it turns out. Suffering is different than pain. Suffering happens when you don't want to have the pain. He also had a bad back. Now, the Buddha had a bad back? Yeah, he was 80. So he had a bad back, not because he was the Buddha, but because he was 80. And so that, for me, when I read that early Buddhist tradition of Theravada, he, it really brought the fact to me that he was a real guy. And no matter how much meditation practice he did or his other spiritual practices, he didn't transform his body. He transformed his consciousness. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah. I still have the gender thing. It's like if you can transform your consciousness only to a certain point, you still have your body. So you're still in a world yes, of you, to a certain extent, regardless of the body. Regardless of how you're thinking, you your body still gives you away. Right. You know? So... Um, oh. And, and we can't cut off our heads. You know, we have to, mind and body are connected in this lifetime. And, and I know some people say, gosh, if I can get rid of my body, then it would be a perfect life, you know. Well, but then we wouldn't be a human being. You're right. right. It doesn't work with just consciousness. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because... Yes. These were men who had been reincarnated as women. And you're right. But now we don't use the word reincarnated in Buddhism. And, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And the reason we don't use it is because reincarnation requires a soul. And the Buddha said we don't have one. Now, if you have one, it's okay. But, but it, it's the thing that transmigrates is karmic energy rather than the soul. So thanks for bringing it up in that way so I could explain that. I appreciate that. Yes. And I have a question. Is it true in your belief that we choose our parents and we choose the, pe- the place of birth? <laughs> well, um, now, I, I'm going to change that in my understanding because I don't have a belief in Buddhism, but I have an understanding of Buddhism. And it seems to me that karma plays uh, a small part in the picking of our parents. And, and let me end with this model, and you can see why I would say that. Um, one of the great things, if we put all this aside, about having a family, at some level we didn't pick them, and so we have to figure out how to live with them. Most of the other people in life we get to pick, our friends, our, our spouses, our mates, but gosh, our family, they just we just sort of showed up there, huh? The luck of the draw. The luck of the draw. And now we got it for the rest of our life. <laughs> so, um, so... What are the five reasons why things happen according to Buddhism? And in particular, early Buddhism, and these are called uh, the five niyamas, the five causes of why stuff happens. So you can apply this to birth, you can apply this to hurricanes and, and tsunamis, and you can apply this to political regimes as well. The first reason stuff happens is natural law. And one of the natural laws seems to be gravity. Now, I saw a great bumper sticker the other day said, uh, evolution is just a theory, sort of like gravity. And I'm thinking, what a great bumper sticker that is. So we have gravity, for instance. And now you're walking and you fall down. And one of the reasons you fell down was because of gravity. If we didn't have gravity, you might have slipped but not fallen. So these natural causes... uh, um, uh, the, the, the shifting of the earth causes earthquakes and tsunamis. 
So we couldn't say maybe karma was the only cause for a tsunami, that the Earth and gravitational poles had something to do with that too. That's the first cause. The second cause is genes and chromosomes, that uh, they sort of get us ready for certain things to happen or not happen. We, we can override them sometimes as we grow. You know, so you might, genes and chromosomes might give you asthma, and yet you're able to, through just living, outgrow your asthma or take proper medication and asthma. But genes and chromosomes play a big deal in what happens to us as human beings. The third thing that causes things to happen is karma. And this is the moral element, the cause and consequence, the skillfulness and unskillfulness, the uncomfortable consequences or the very comfortable consequences. So karma plays a role in, in each one of us being born, but it's not the only role that's, that's, that's important. Uh, the fourth uh, category or the fourth niyama would be dharma. Now, dharma has 16 different meanings in some Pali dictionaries, but in, in this case, dharma... I like to think of as being my religious practice. So my religious practice plays an important role in what happens to me and what happens to people around me. And last but not least is mind. Mind creates a lot of stuff for us. And some people believe mind creates the world. You know, so mind is a very important reason why stuff happens. Those five things in early Buddhism um, are often used to explain why stuff happens. Thank you. Pardon? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You're welcome. You're welcome. So, um, so when we look at our families, you know, we can't blame one thing. We have to have patience, forgiveness, and acceptance. Thank you. Time to meditate? Yeah. Well, that's it. That was my talk to the Long Beach Meditation Group slash Sangha. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. If you'd like to hear more podcasts or talks I've given, please visit dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. If you'd like to know more about me, uh, please visit kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you would like to email me, my email address is kusala at urbandharma.org. That's kusala at urbandharma.org. I'll get back with you just as soon as I can. Well, and until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>